And so, so much of what we hear in the press about, oh, you know, uh, the EU is, they're, they're going to stop importing Russian oil and they're going to stop importing. I mean, it's crap. I mean, they're absolutely incapable of doing that. Most of what they're talking about is formalizing what has already been done to them. That's what they're doing. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. Oil prices have nearly doubled since December. They're definitely a substantial contributing factor to the hot inflation that continues to rage across the globe here at the start of summer, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, in 2022. Summer, of course, is peak driving season. Does that mean oil prices are headed even higher in the near term? And what about the long term? And has the West's embargo of Russian oil permanently changed the game for oil prices? If so, how? For answers, we turn to petroleum geologist and energy expert Art Berman, who kindly agreed to come back on the program after so many of you viewers asked if we could hear his latest insights on the oil situation. Art, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, always good to talk to you, Adam. Thanks for having me back. Uh, it's a pleasure, Art. Uh, I'd wanted to have you back on for a long time to kind of get into the larger sort of fossil energy discussion that we ended on the last time you were on the show. Unfortunately, things have just been so darn busy. I haven't been able to bring you back on for that. And I want this show to be specific to oil, if possible, just because there's so many questions around it right now, given how high oil is spiked. So before we get into the details of that, though, if I can just at a very high level ask you, um, what's your current assessment of the oil market today? Well, oil markets are uh, are tight. Um, you know that's a that's a fa uh, a popular word among uh, analysts, simply meaning that uh, there's a a very uh, that, that there's not a lot of give and take between supply and demand. So when somebody wants to buy a physical barrel of oil. Uh, it can be found, but it's uh, you may have to look around for it to get it at the right price. So there's, you know, we've got a very, uh, you know, a, a rather, uh, you know, kind of a, a of a seller's market if if you want to think about it that way. And so, like with any seller's market, uh, depending on how much you need a barrel of oil or you need a new SUV or whatever, uh, you may have to pay more than than you originally planned. To get it, so that's the way the oil the oil market has been before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and so with with all that going on, of course, that just uh, kind of amps up the you know the the, the intensity of the whole thing. Um, my sense is that um, we're you know we're, we're at $120 for uh, West Texas Intermediate U.S. oil, and we're a little bit higher for international oil or Brent. Um, I could be way wrong, but I, I think we're bumping up against uh, at least the you know a, a resistance level for the near term. Um, and, and so that one of the things we'll we'll hopefully talk about is, is that um, you know oil prices, oil markets are are not some sort of uh, magical thing. And that prices can sort of just become whatever they want to. Um, you know, this market doesn't have rules, but it it does follow uh, certain patterns. 
And just because somebody gets on Squawk Box or, you know, Kramer or whatever and, and, and says, oh, oil's going to go to $200 a barrel. Well, it may get to $200 a barrel, but it's very unlikely that it'll get there, you know, like in three months or six months. I mean, you know, these things take time. And in my view, I don't think it'll ever get to $200. I'll, I'll probably be wrong since I just said that. But but that's my that's my sense of the way of the way price formation works in this market. So I don't see price going down a whole lot. Um, I don't for the near term see it going up much more. And I would be cautious because uh, there's always, there are always a lot of rugs to pull out from under this thing. And we're, we're right now just kind of in the exhilaration of, oh, you know, the, the Chinese uh, COVID lockdowns are over, so China's opening up, and oh my God, you know, think of all the great things that that could do, and demand is huge, and, you know, and, and, and there's more oil coming out of Russia than we thought, and so, you know, there, there's this general uh, optimism that, that things are looking pretty good, but, but there, there are a million little pieces that can you know, can be pulled out and all of a sudden this Jenga game collapses on us. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about some of those potential rug pulls in a bit. Um, you sent over a bunch of charts. Um, I, I want to walk through at least a couple of them, Art, because I think they're going to make, um, you know, they're, they're going to build on what you just said there. Um, some of them are coming from a report you recently released called Oil Demand Destruction is Inevitable. And one of the reasons why I think this is such an important piece is there's a lot of people right now, I think a lot of viewers of this channel right now, who are very bullish oil, uh, as am I in the long run. Um, but here I mentioned in the intro that oil's doubled basically since December. Um, you're going to give us some more detail in just a minute here about some of the, the rules that, that constrain the oil market. And so having a runaway oil price, like you said, up to like $200 a barrel, while it's possible, um, it, it's, it's very rare for a reason. And if we were to get to an extreme like that, odds aren't bad that we would not stay there for a long time, given those constraints. And so um, correct me if anything I'm saying here is wrong, but, but I, I want to make sure that we aren't, we're helping people not kind of jump on a a, a you know kind of a, a bandwagon of um, I don't want to say FOMO necessarily, but just oh my gosh you know I'm a big hard assets fan. Finally, oil is really moving. This is when oil is going to go to the moon. I'm jumping on here. Uh, not saying to necessarily not make those investments. I'm just saying you know make them understanding that maybe the biggest part of the move in oil has been over. And if we get demand destruction, well that then more or less always leads to lower oil prices, doesn't it, Art? Exactly. And, and so where I would start is it's not a question of, you know, of, of if we will have demand destruction, because we will. It, it's a question of when it'll kick in. And I say that um, not because I, you know, I'm, I'm fond of, of making statements of high certitude, but, you know, just because if you look at all of the uh, the cycles that have occurred in world oil markets since the 1970s, whenever we have a, a spike in oil prices that always occurs with a spike in inflation, we can talk about chicken and egg there, but they, they commonly occur together, um, we always see demand destruction. We always see it. Um, 
and so the you know the in a in a quantum universe i suppose uh just because you've seen it before doesn't mean that um that the next time is it, going to be the same but in in a, in a real world um you know the whole idea that this time is different it just doesn't play very well over time so we will have demand destruction and then the next question is you know when might we see it and i'll tell you right away i don't know i don't think anybody knows and how big will it be how great will it be i, I think we can put some limits on that and it won't be trivial all right so um let's let's talk about what could drive that demand destruction but before we do let's talk with talk about what's driving today's high prices what's driving today's high prices I mean, you know, you, you can get this on the front page of the Wall Street Journal or, you know, New York Times or whatever. And that is that we are recovering from a, a global recession of extraordinary proportions because of the pandemic. And, and, and whenever, I mean, you can go back and you can go back to, uh, you know, to the, the 14th century and look at what happens when plagues. Uh, occurred in in Europe and and whenever they do, um, there's always uh, a shortage of labor. Uh, supply chains are all busted up because uh, they haven't been used for a while. You know, a lot of the people that that ran them have gone out of business or they died from the plague or COVID or, or, or whatever. And so what we're seeing after COVID again is you know I mean. It's playing out in, in, in the 21st century, but it's, it's not really all that different from what has happened in you know, similar kinds of uh, periods of infectious disease in the past. So uh, all of a sudden demand comes back and, and supply is not there for it. And, and, and you don't just flip a switch and turn on supply. I don't care what it is. I mean, maybe you can do that with you know, with, with your electric power after a blackout. But uh, if everybody does it all at the same time, then there's problems with that too. So that, that, that's, that's the, underlying, the underlying theme, I think, that, you know, is, is relevant here. So, you know, we, we, were, we were in a situation of, uh, of a very tight uh, supply demand before the Russians invaded Ukraine. And when they did, um, that took several million barrels off the market almost instantly. And then, of course, the expectation of, oh, my goodness, you know, I mean, we don't know where that's going to go. And by the way, it's not just crude oil, um, maybe even more significantly, it's diesel and gasoline that, that Russia uh, provided and still does provide uh, a, a lot of the uh, refined products for Europe and Africa and the rest of the world. And so suddenly, uh, you know, somebody driving a truck in Germany uh, wants to put diesel in it. Well, there's several hundred thousand barrels a day of Russian diesel no longer available to it. Where's he gonna get it? Well, you know, it takes a while to figure that out. Maybe you have to pay a premium to get the diesel into Germany. So so this is what's going on. Uh, the 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 world was uh, distorted because of COVID, and the Russian invasion uh, further distorted markets, and not just oil markets.
markets. I mean, food markets and, you know, fundamental uh, communication lines. I mean, it, 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 it's, I mean, I, I would go so far as to say that, that what's happening today, which is kind of centered on, on Ukraine and Russia, is, 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 is reforming the world order as we know it. Uh, that, that, that maybe sound a bit dramatic, but, you know, but that's, that's the way I look at it. And things will never be the same. After COVID, I've said that many times when we talked. And, and after Ukraine, if there isn't after Ukraine, things are, they don't just snap back to the way they were. Thanks. So you just went to my next question, which is, I was going to ask it mostly about um, the Ukraine war and the, the West's now, you know, boycott of Russian, many Russian products, but particularly Russian uh, oil and gas. Um, has that plus, I'll just lump the pandemic in there too, and the impact that it had in the world, has that permanently changed the game for oil, do you believe? In many ways, uh, yeah, I, I think it has. And and then and, and factor into that uh, the the uh, the investment trends, you know, the the ESG kind of uh, you know environmental social governance and and a growing concern certainly among investors, if not the public, about climate change and you know some of the things that we're doing to the to the planet. Um, you know, lump all that together, and and, and yeah, I, I think. Uh, I think what 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 I think Putin's timing of of his invasion was made very mindful um, of many of these factors, but certainly energy. I mean, a lot of people don't don't know, but Vladimir Putin has a PhD in energy economics, and there's I didn't know that. Yeah, well, it's okay. You know, there's a lot of things that. Energy is a complicated subject. So Putin wrote his dissertation about um, how the fall of the Soviet Union was uh, fundamentally linked to the um, incompetence of the Soviet government to properly maintain its oil and gas production infrastructure. So here's a guy and, and, and you know you, you can Google it, and there are plenty of people that say you know that he he had a ghostwriter who did his dissertation, and you know whatever um, you know maybe true, maybe not. But um, my sense of this is that that Putin probably knows more about energy and commodities than all the leaders of NATO put together even if he did pay somebody to do his dissertation wow. for him. And, and so the timing of this was, okay, so Putin's looking at the world and he knows we just got through COVID and he knows everybody's oil and gas supplies are low and that it's going to take months, if not years, to bring them back. He knows that the United States particularly is literally on its ass um, you know, all the shale plays are, you know, are way down and investors are not giving money and credit is tight. And, and, and then there, you know, there are demographic concerns. I mean, Russia, Russia has a declining population. They, they, they've got, you know, some of the worst demographics in the world, very, you know, uh, uh, 
uh, low life expectancies, high alcoholism. I mean, he had a really hard time raising an army. And, and you may have heard, I mean, he was out there basically asking for volunteers, you know, from places like Syria and, uh, you know, and, and some of the, the Caucasus countries. Uh, I don't think that was public relations. It's not good PR anyway. So, you know, I think Putin is looking at this. Well, you know, if not now, when? When, when is there a good time? And so, so much of what we hear in the press about, oh, you know, uh, the EU is, they're, they're going to stop importing Russian oil and they're going to stop importing. I mean, it's crap. I mean, they're absolutely incapable of doing that. Most of what they're talking about is formalizing what has already been done to them. That's what they're doing. And, and you know, I, I don't want to, I'm, I'm not trying to be critical or sarcastic about the EU leadership. I'm just saying that, I mean, they're trying to frame this in a way that makes them look like they're actually doing something when there really isn't very much they can do at all. They're kind of screwed. And they're, they're, they're more screwed on gas than they are on oil. And, and, and the sort of chest beating that you hear about how, you know, oh, well, you know, uh, the United States is going to, you know, come riding in with a white horse. I mean, that's crap, too. Um, we, we have, in, in a tight oil market, we have very limited. Uh, ability to increase our oil production. And if we did, uh, the current administration wishes we would keep it all right here. Uh, you know, can we, can we build new liquefied natural gas, uh, you know, liquefaction facilities? Yeah, we can. It takes a long time. It costs a lot of money. So basically what can be done right now is that we can divert shipments of both crude oil and refined products and natural gas from certain geographies and preferentially send them to Europe. And don't get me wrong, I mean, that, you know, that, that, that's helpful. But it isn't exactly like uh, we can just turn our back on Russia, we being, um, you know, the, the NATO countries. Um, you know, they, they desperately need that, that oil and that gas. So Putin knew what he was doing. Not a surprise. Okay. And for folks that, that maybe want to delve even more deeply into that, I did an interview a couple of months back with David Knight Legg, who um, inspired both the New York Times and a Wall Street Journal uh, coverage of, of basically his thesis, which was that the Ukraine war was really an energy heist. Um, it was less about NATO encroachment and less about sort of reclaiming ancestral, uh, you know, people back into Russia's fold. And it, it was more about capturing some of the remaining world-class energy resources uh, that were in U Ukraine's southern region there. If you're interested in watching that, you can, I'll put up a link to the video right here. But Art, I'm just sort of listening to what you're saying and, and I'm interpreting from that, that um, uh, there's going to be this uh, back and forth between the West and Russia for a long time going on. It's not gonna be as cooperative as it was beforehand but likely a full embargo is not likely to uh, really be something that's feasibly going to last for an awfully long time because the West is so dependent upon those resources. So it's, it's kind of some new world order. Well, it is. And, and, and a lot of it is, is stealth also. I mean, so a lot of what's happening right now is that uh, Russian tankers carrying Russian oil are transferring that oil on the high seas even to other tankers that will then take it to 
ports that were receiving Russian oil before, only now it you know it's not officially coming from Russia. Or right. um, there there are certain major oil companies who are blending diesel, so they're taking uh, they're taking 49% of Russian diesel and blending it with 51%, you know, let's say Nigerian diesel, and and therefore it doesn't count as Russian diesel, and they can send it to Europe and not not uh, you know bust any of the any of the uh, the embargo yeah. restrictions. Yeah, so it's it, it, it's a leaky embargo, um, but I, there's I, no I way to enforce it. Yeah. So, so sort of the spirit of my question, though, is, is at least in terms of the, the, the dynamics in play going forward with Russia versus before the war, um, my assumption based on what you're saying is, is, is at least that component sort of uh, sets a higher price floor for right. oil because it's not flowing as unencumbered as it was before between Russia and, and the West. Now, there's lots of other factors going on, but but it seems to me that the Russia one is setting a higher floor, uh, you know, from, from its direction. Is that, is that accurate? Russia's having to discount its oil sales. So it's sending a lot of oil or a certain amount of oil to places like India and places like China. You're right. They're actually getting a bargain because it can't sell to us now. Yeah. And then, I mean, those countries are not endorsing the embargo. Um, and they're, they're doing that for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons is, I mean, China Hey, you know, I mean, if, if if we can get a twenty or thirty dollar discount for taking Russian oil, well, that's a smart thing for us. You know, we can put it in our storage, and uh, you know, uh, that that'll be just great for us. And and and, and by the way, uh, countries like Italy and countries like Germany are now paying rubles for Russian gas. Now, right, you know, that's because the they have to. I mean, Russia's saying we're turning off the spigots if you don't, right? <laughs> Well, that's right. And, and, and so publicly, oh, we'll never do that. You know, I mean, that's ridiculous, but they're actually doing it because they're actually doing it. That's what they have to do. Right. OK, well, I'm glad you brought that up because it really did show that I'm just thinking too simplistically, which is kind of one of the reasons why we're doing this video is I just want to prevent people from falling into a similar trap. Right. You're right. You know, the Russian oil gas may get more expensive for the West, but it's getting cheaper for the rest of the world. So you kind of have these these cross currents going on. Before I get to the, the, the next question, I'm gonna get to on my list, just related to this, and, and I'll take a really short answer. But I imagine sort of another element in terms of the new world order around energy um, is China in the sense that China's growth is slowing, right? And so, yes, it's opening up right now from having relocked down, and there'll be maybe some short-term burst from that. But but as we look at the next decade, the growth in demand from China for oil should be substantially less than the growth that it had in demand for the past couple decades. Correct? Seems inevitable, right? Sure, it's a maturing economy. Yeah. Okay. So just underscoring, we the path going forward may not look super similar to the path that that got us here. Um, all right. So you know, you you've written in your report, and you've mentioned a couple of times that you see oil demand going, the demand destruction happening from here. So why don't I let you make that thesis? Right. So the first thing, and, and we've got slides that, you know, that, that, that viewers can, can look at, but the, the first thing is let's just get calibrated. You know, let's talk about um, oil price today and the, the, the May average for West Texas Intermediate was about $110. 
And so looking at, at, at the slide, uh, I, I've just taken all the oil prices back to 1950, and I've put them in April 2020 dollars. And so when we do that, we see that, I mean, $110 is, is, is a high price. There's no doubt about it. It's the highest price we've seen, you know, nominally or, you know, or, or real uh, for the last seven or eight years. But it's substantially less than the peaks in 2011, 2008, and 1980. So um, there, there's two ways to look at that. The first is that oil prices are not as high as, as people want to think they are. Uh, a different way to look at it is um, maybe there's more room to run, okay? That if the world was able to tolerate, uh, you know, the equivalent of 140 or $175 a barrel back in, 1980, 2011, and 2000. Well, you know, may, maybe that maybe the world can tolerate, uh, you know, that level again. Now, uh, I, you know, the, the the world is different. We've got a lot more exposure to debt, so I would, you know, I, I don't want to get into that, but you know, my sense is probably not. But you know, but fair enough. I mean, we, we can do that. Um, another slide that's that's important to look at is looking at the correlation between inflation and oil price. And I don't really understand why economists seem to have so much difficulty understanding this. Maybe it's because they don't look at it. And I don't, I'm not, I'm not disrespecting economists, but I listen to them. And, you know, they're talking about all kinds of, of uh, you know, really kind of fancy stuff here, you know, money supply and labor flows and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And th those are all, I mean, I'm not an economist, but I, I understand that. And th those are all real. I mean, those are, those are valid. But you look at this slide, and I'm just showing 2006 to the present. And, I mean, the correlation between oil price, which is in blue, and inflation in orange, I mean, it just doesn't get any better in the real world. I mean, that, that, that is just as solid a correlation as you could ever hope for. And we can argue about you know, which comes first. But as you know, um, my long-term observation is that energy is the economy, that money is, is nothing more than, than a marker or a call, a claim on energy. Uh, life needs energy. All life needs energy. And economy, we, we use money as a proxy for energy or work, you know, call it work. I mean, it is work. And so the fact that if, 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 if the price of, of oil being, the, you know, the, the predominant form of energy in the modern economy, if the price of oil goes up, then it only seems logical or reasonable that inflation would go up. And in fact, when you look at this graph, it always does. And and I have other graphs that you know where this data is included that you'll see that it you know goes back much much farther. I just wanted to zoom in on this because this is the last 15 years of of, of our lives. And so what what we look at then is I've I've basically taken basically I have taken oil price and inflation, and I want to look at at demand. I want to look at, at, at demand. I'm just looking at the United States right now. 
And that's not because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an American and I only think about the United States. It's because all of this data is available to me through the U.S. government and banks on a monthly basis. And I just can't get that for the rest of the world. I mean, I can get it for, for some countries and maybe even some groups of countries. But the United States is the world's largest consumer of oil. And by the way, the largest producer of oil. So the United States is, is, is not a bad proxy for the rest of the world. And so looking at this slide, what I'm showing here is inflation in blue and petroleum consumption, which is in red. And what it shows is that every time there's an inflationary spike, there is a decrease in our consumption of, of oil and uh, the refined products that come from it. And those are pretty darn significant. I mean, in, in, in 1980 to 1983, U.S. consumption of oil dropped more than 3 million barrels a day. It's huge. Um, you know, it dropped uh, a million, million and a half after 2008, 2009. I mean, these are substantial proportions and, and we either don't remember it or, or, or don't think about it. And so the logic there is very straightforward. And that is that when oil price and the price of the gasoline and the diesel and the kerosene and all the things that come from it, when they reach a certain level, it causes us pain as consumers. And so we slow down our consumption. And the most the easiest way for most of us to save money is to not drive as much. And gasoline is, you know, pretty nearly 50% of every barrel of, 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 of refined of, of crude oil. And so we all make these decisions and we decide to drive a little bit less, each one of us, and we decide to fly a little bit less and in the past take trains and buses a little bit less and maybe order a little bit less from Amazon or wherever, which is all taken around in diesel. Uh, driven vehicles, and eventually our consumption goes down. So that's just a, that, that's a fact. I mean, that, that, that's not a theory. And then, you know, finally, I normalize all of those things, which is to say I take each cycle and, and simply, you know, set the, uh, the low to zero and the high to one um, so that you can, you know, really strongly see uh, what those cycles are doing. And in this particular graph, I've got consumption or demand. It's not exactly the same, but it's close enough. In, in blue shading, I've got inflation in red, and I've got oil price in black. And I've got a little table in there that tells you, um, you know, what the, what the incremental inflation oil price and change in demand was for each of those cycles. And they're all different and, you know, and they last a number of years. But, but when, we, when, when I take all that and annualize it back down and say, well, on average, how much demand destruction occurs in a year for all these historical events, it works out to be something like, you know, six, seven hundred thousand barrels a day per year. And the average cycle is two or three years. So uh, this is not a prediction. But it is a, you know, it is an observation that says that I think that U.S. consumption of, of refined products could easily fall, 
a half a million, a million, a million and a half barrels a day over the next several years. And if the U.S. consumes 20% of the world, then multiply by five. It's not quite that simple, but let's just keep it simple for now. And that says that world demand for oil could fall over a period of several years, seven and a half, eight, nine million barrels a day. And that's a big chunk. It's, you know, it's 10%. And so this idea that oil price can just keep on going up and up and up because supply is tight, if that were the only factor, sure, sure. And then the final factor, which I think is really important, is what about the economic implications of this? And so the final slide I'm going to bore everybody with shows inflation, oil price, and again, we're talking U.S. and gross domestic product. And I'm showing in, in, in orange or, or yellow positive GDP growth, and I'm showing in red negative GDP growth. And what a shock that every time the price of oil goes up and inflation goes up, GDP growth goes negative. That doesn't mean that we're in a depression or a recession. It just means, well, it could mean we're in a recession. It just, it, it just means what it is. I mean, again, this is, this is empirical. This is just data. You know, I didn't, I didn't do anything to the data except present it. And so what does that I mean, the, the implications of this are actually kind of chilling. I mean, there, there are a million reasons that you can, you can hear economists talk about for why we could be seeing a recession sometime in the next 12, 18 months or whatever the, the window is. But what this is saying is you could easily see maybe not a recession, but some negative GDP growth simply because of the price of oil. No other reason needed. Why? Because it always happens. All right. Well, great historical evidence here, uh, Art. And, um, you know, it, I kind of summarize it in my head by the old maxim that, that high prices are oftentimes the cure for high prices, right? Just gets too high that, that you start getting this organic demand destruction. To your last point there, though, you said you can make the argument nothing else happening, just oil prices staying at these prices, we're going to get that demand destruction. We also have the Federal Reserve right now with its foot on the accelerator, helping out the process, right? You know, every week, Jerome Powell says, I, my job is to bring demand down here, right? So um, all I'd say is, is, is if you think it's likely just based on the oil data alone, I got to imagine with the Fed on your side, the probability of future demand destruction gets, gets a lot higher, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, look, um, uh, you, you had mentioned that given these historical numbers, you can kind of make the case that from here we could see demand destruction along the lines of, I'm, I'm averaging the numbers you threw out there, but about a million um, barrels annually for this, right? Or it's, yeah, a, a million well, barrels. Le less day. annually, but total. Okay, totally. Uh, total. Um, all right. So um, then that's that current, you know, it's sort of the current supply situation, if you know, demand might fall that much, if, if prices remain elevated like this. What is the current supply situation? Um, I know you described the market as tight, um, meaning there's, there's, there's not a lot of um, uh, price elasticity in the current market, I suppose. But um, 
Are we in an aberrantly tight market right now compared to, to, to history? Well, that's certainly what you would gather from the headlines. Um, and, and for those of us that, uh, that, that go a little bit deeper and, and, and read headlines that are specifically directed at, at oil traders and energy brokers and all of that, I think you you would you, you might even get that 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 message in spades. I mean that 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 is the popular narrative. Um, now I, I'm not in any way disputing or, or, or discounting that, but but there are a couple of, of, of important things to to take a look at, and and um, I'll I'll give you, you know, three quick shots here um, that kind of ease into this. The first is just looking at, at U.S. fuel consumption. So I'm looking at, at, at diesel or distillate, as it's actually called, and gasoline. Okay, those, those are the, you know, the, 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 the predominant portion of what you sell from every barrel of oil. And of course, those are something that you know, almost every American uses one or the other, if not both, maybe not directly, but if you take a plane or you order stuff by truck or take a train, uh, you're using diesel, whether you have a diesel vehicle or not. And so what this, what this graph shows, it, it's an incremental presentation. So it's, it's showing gasoline and, and diesel or distillate consumption demand, if you will, uh, compared to the, the low point uh, in, in, in the graph. And, and, I, and it doesn't change the data. The numbers add up, right, because I, I add in a base at the bottom. It's just a, it's just a way of, of making it more obvious what, what's happening. And what you see real obviously is the left two-thirds of, of the graph from 2015 to 2020, the, the additive gasoline and distillate consumption is substantially higher than on the right side. And of course, you got the COVID ditch or whatever in the middle. But what I'm presenting then in black is the actual average. Okay, and it's plotted at the same scale just to show that because it's incremental, I'm still presenting it in a real way. And what we see is that gasoline and diesel consumption have decreased since COVID by almost half a million barrels a day. And that's the biggest use of a barrel of oil is gasoline and diesel. Now, I'm not going to say anything more about, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not predicting doom and gloom here. I'm not saying the economy is going down the drain because of this. I mean, I, I think we can easily, I mean, heck, I drive a whole lot less now after COVID because I don't have to go to work anymore. <laughs> I do everything from home and, you know, I, I don't drive my car very much and I, uh, th there are a lot of other reasons, but I think that's probably something that, you know, that everybody can relate to. I don't know very many people that drive as much as before. That, that, that's what we're seeing here. So when you hear that, you know, oh, you know, inventories of gasoline and diesel are desperately low and, you know, they're worried about running out of, of diesel at truck stops in certain parts of the country. All that's true. Why? Because we're exporting our asses off. <laughs> we're sending all the diesel and gasoline we can to places like Europe because we can get a higher price for it over there. And there's nothing in the world wrong with that. Okay. I mean, that's the way capitalism works. But the result of that is that 
it's driving prices up for, for us because there's less of our own diesel and gasoline for us to consume. The next slide. Hey, sorry, before you go on that, just want to just want to make sure I understand. Um, so it sounds like what you're saying is, is um, one of the reasons why gas prices are elevated here is because we're shipping a lot of this stuff off to other players because we're getting a really nice price for it as a nation. But individually, that just means I'm paying a bit of a higher price at the pump. It's not the entire reason why the pump price is higher, but it's one of the reasons. If, if you had to bitch about something, that'd be what I'd bitch about. Okay. Said, Why don't we keep it here? You know, this is uh, make America great again. You know, why are we sending all of our good stuff to other people? Um, obviously, I don't I don't really believe that. But, you know, that that would be a, a meme somebody might put out there. Right. OK. It's all a conspiracy. It's all a conspiracy. If, if we look at um, world production, this is a forecast. Well, it's, it's actually most of its data. Um, goes from 2018 through the end of 2022. So we're, you know, we're, we're nearly halfway through 2022. So the rest of 2022 is a forecast, but I mean, it's not a wild ass forecast, you know, it's like five years in the future. This is the, you know, the Department of, of Energy just came out um, Tuesday. And their forecast um, is that world oil production will return to pre-COVID levels this year. You know, the, it's going to get to 101 million barrels a day of crude oil and refined products, which is where it was in November of 2019, which is almost the highest it's ever been, which was a year previous in 2018. So this is just a counterpoint. You know, oh, we're, we're, there's no supply to be found. Well, um, you know, we're at 99.9 today as the world. That's not a forecast. It's an estimate, but it's not a forecast. According to EIA, the Energy Information Administration, which is part of the Department of Energy. So, you know, how much of a stretch is it to get from 100 to 101 point something? Well, you know, it's not that big of a stretch. So is this a totally outrageous, wildly optimistic forecast? No. Do I think it's, it's going to happen? No, but it, it, it's a perspective by 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 some people that you know they think about this all the time, and so that's what they're saying. So wait a minute, I thought I thought supply was so tight that we you know we're we're going to be at two hundred dollar oil. Well, not if we get back to you know to to levels pre COVID. And what if art is ten percent right that demand is going to go down? Well, then we're going to have too much. Which brings me to the last slide I'll, I'll bore you with, and that is from the same uh, U.S. Department of Energy report. I've simply taken supply and demand or production and consumption, which is sort of the same thing when you're looking at the whole world, okay? Um, basically, the difference between demand and consumption is demand is what you, you use plus what you export. But if the whole world is exporting to everybody else, then it, you know, it, it ought to be the same. It ought to balance out. If you're just talking about one country, consumption could be different from, from demand because maybe you're exporting a lot of oil. But without wanting to confuse the issue, my point is they're not that different. And if we look at this, and again, this is data. This is not forecast except for the last two points. 
this is the balance. This is if you take world supply and subtract demand from it, those are the the columns. The blue is the 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 difference is positive. In other words, you have a surplus, you've got more supply than demand, and the red bars are a deficit. You've got less supply than you do demand. Well, what you see is that beginning in the quarter that we're in, the third bar to the right, these guys are saying we're going to have a supply surplus of half a million barrels a day. And by the third quarter, it's going to be three quarters of a million barrels a day. And by the fourth quarter, it's going to drop down a little bit to 700,000 barrels a day. Okay. So again, you know, I'm not endorsing this. Um, I, I made the graph, but I, you know, I didn't doctor the, the data at all. This is straight from, from the government. Um, but it's, it's a perspective that's, and, and by the way, Adam, I mean, you know, this is not the first time I've seen this. I've been showing graphs like this from, from OPEC, from EIA, from IEA, the International Energy Agency, for months and months and months. They've all been showing some version of the same story, that 2022, we ought to have a surplus of oil in the world. And we can argue, is it going to be half a million barrels a day? Is it going to be five barrels a day? Is it going to be a million and a half barrels a day? And they, and they all vary. But all I'm doing here is, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm just... I'm just providing some context that that when people say, "Oh, you know, we, we don't know where the next barrel is going to come from." Well, there's, there's there's some there's some credible people out there. They're saying, "Well, gee, we can tell you." So I'll just leave it there, and we can we can discuss what all this means. But um, my my sense is is that the headlines are right, as, as they always well, they're not always right, but uh, as with any any story. If there were no truth to it, it wouldn't last more than a day. Okay, so there is truth to the fundamental headline story that oil supply is tight and the prices are high and are likely to, if not go higher, certainly not too likely to go a whole lot lower, at least in the near term. I'm not in any way questioning that story. I'm just saying there's more to the story than the headline. Right, which I think is really important. And, and yes, the charts you just showed are, you know, none of those scream uh, oil shortage, uh, at least in the near term here. Um, now, what what may really be the, the factor, as we talked about earlier, is, you know, not, not all oil is created the same, meaning um, it, 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 the, the uses of oil, the applications of oil, um, they require, you know, refining and different types of refineries for the different types of grades of oil that come out and, and you know, there's diesel versus regular gas and all that stuff, right? And right now, given what's going on with Russia, you know, it's sort of like, you know, the, the game board got shook up and everyone's spending a lot of time right now trying to figure out how to get the right supplies into the right places. And that's creating a lot of friction. That's adding a good deal of the cost here. Um, but, but, but from what you're looking at, you don't see a reason to sound the alarm that says, hey, the world is just running dangerously tight on oil here in the near term. Might even be a little bit more on the other side of that story. Um, and the reason why I wanted to score this is because so many people who watch this channel have heard a lot of the experts that I talk to say, hey, I'm pretty bullish on energy and oil. Um, I think in most cases, those people are talking 
about you know a macro outlook that's measured in years, maybe even a decade. And while who knows what's going to happen with oil prices, you know, for the rest of this year, um, I, from what I'm taking from what you're saying is is there's actually you know fair probability that oil prices are going to go lower this year for the factors that you just mentioned that are going to lead to demand destruction and the fact that there's no really sort of like foundational um, supply shortage right now. Um, so part of the reason why, you know, I think it's so important to have you on here walking through what you've been walking through is, you know, when we launch these videos, we do a live chat. People also send me emails and comments all day long. And I can see that there are a lot of people who are asking, hey, should I be jumping into oil right now? And uh, you're a much more better uh, expert to kind of give a, uh, you know, a, a nod to what you think oil prices are going to do for the rest of this year. But but looking at your data, hearing what you're telling me, it really gives me caution to say, well, if, if I were going to invest in oil or oil services companies right now, I need to be prepared for the potential of this demand destruction that you've been laying out for us, Art. Um, so let me stop talking and hand it back to you. Would you would, would you agree or would you have a different perspective? I would totally agree, Adam. And and, and I, I want to caution that the, the part that I'm reasonably certain about is that there will be demand destruction. The part that I cannot begin to tell you based on past instances is when we might see that. Because in all of these cycles, and you know, your your listeners can can study uh, one or two of those charts in detail when they, you know, in, in their own time. And you can take a, I mean, the, the onset of, uh, of, of inflation or oil price increase versus the onset of demand destruction is all over the place. You know, sometimes the, they, they nearly coincide. More often, the destruction is at several months or many, many months in the future. Uh, all depending on the health of the economy and a million other factors that you know I, I don't want to want to go into right now. My 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 advice to myself, <laughs> um, and therefore uh, you know hopefully to you know to, to your listeners is I think that that energy is a good place to invest, especially because oil and the oil and gas part of it at least is. So much out of favor these days. Uh, you know, you hear a lot of people talk about, well, you know, it's been a lot of underinvestment in, in oil and gas. And I guess somehow maybe that's supposed to be the fault of, of the oil companies. Well, it, it's really the fault of the fact that investors walked away from oil and gas beginning in a big way back in the middle of 2018. They said, you know, you guys are just, you know, your returns are lousy. Why should we give you any more money? And, and, and you know, and that was an absolutely uh, dead on. I mean, I, I don't understand why it took them 10 years to figure that out. But, <laughs> you know, that, that's a whole other conversation. But but that's what happened. OK, so you can't invest money that you don't have. And, and secondly, um, all of these companies are desperately trying to win back the trust of investors. And so you hear a little bit about, or maybe a lot about, um, the uh, uh, fiscal discipline that oil companies, uh, at least in the United States, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to focus on growing production anymore. We're going to focus on returning money to shareholders. All right, and 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 that's working to some extent. 
uh, the, the, the returns are great right now. I mean, if you don't drill that many wells, you don't have a lot of capital expenditure and you actually have wells that produce oil, you're going to make money for your shareholders. Right. But you so, are setting up a future supply issue, correct? That's the underinvestment piece of it. So there's a present underinvestment and there's a future. But, it, but if you look at performance, I mean, the, the, oil in, the oil sector has performed like gangbusters year to date, right? I mean, much better than ESG or, you know, really just about any, any, any part of, uh, of, of uh, any sector of the stock market. Right. And sorry to interrupt, but I mean, hey, pretty easy to do that when your underlying, uh, you know, product you sell doubles in price in, in the matter of a couple of months. Sure it is. Um, but before we flipped on the recording, I think I heard you say, yeah, and, and really the best time to get into these companies this year was about three months ago. Or six months ago. Sure. Six sure. months ago. Yeah. 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 I mean, so yeah. meaning like the majority any, of the run has probably been made. And of course, we don't know with certainty, but that's what your gut sort of seems to be. The majority you. of the run, if all you're looking at is, 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 is the, the macro picture of oil or energy. Now, there are individual names that have not benefited um, as much as others for a variety of reasons. And those might be companies that, you know, they, they've got some catching up to do. Those would be, you know, perhaps good investments until that happens, if it ever does happen. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not in any way, um, uh, you know, saying don't, don't think about energy, don't think about oil. I'm simply saying be careful because, as you said, I mean, if, if, if everybody agrees that now is a good time to get in, then you know it's over. <laughs> right. right, right, right. And like you, what I'm not trying to say is don't invest in energy right now. And in fact, if you have a long term horizon, I think it's probably still really good for the, the fundamental reasons you mentioned, Art. I'm just saying if you put money to risk at this point, you should be cognizant that, you know, in the near term and by near term, I kind of mean rest of the year, the demand destruction that you're forecasting could very well come into play. And, and, and just to clarify for people, we keep saying um, demand destruction. Uh, but really, that's important because demand destruction leads to lower prices, right? When you say demand destruction, you're, you're basically expecting lower pricing, right? Right. You're expecting if, 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 if everybody is, is, you know, working as hard as they can to produce more, and it takes months and months and months from the time you start drilling a well until you actually have any oil to sell, and this demand destruction is, you know, kind of working silently in the background and decides to raise its head in six months or 12 months, just about the time the new production is coming online, then you've got, you know, the, the, the cliche of a perfect storm. You got all this new supply coming on just at a time when demand is, is peaking and actually beginning to fall. And then you end up with a glut <laughs> and the price goes down. But the other piece that, you know, I don't want people to lose sight of is there's an economic piece. There is this GDP side that, that, this, that, that oil, high oil prices cool the whole economy because everything runs on energy. Every single thing that's made, not just you know, uh, the, the, uh, the, the polyethylene or whatever is in the shirt I'm wearing, but I mean, everything that's manufactured requires energy to run. It, you got to run a factory, you've got to, you got to supply parts, you've got to, 
distribute your product. It, it all requires, and so if, if energy goes up by you know even a few percent, then your cost of doing business goes up a couple of percent, which means you've got to pass that on by raising your price. And 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 so eventually the whole economy ends up slowing down because the cost of keeping the economy running is forever going higher and it just won't it won't continue to run that way. So 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 just the simple relationship you talk about, price oil gets higher, people use less, but you know, what if we shave uh, what if we go into negative GDP growth as my graph suggests we will? Well, you know, that's even worse. And then you got the Fed, <laughs> as you correctly point out. And oh my God, you know, look at all the things that could go wrong. And and I I'm not a I'm not a doomer. Okay, I mean, I uh, people are incredibly ingenious, um, and I I, re- I think things are rarely as bad as, as, as some people think because they're they're thinking everything's going to happen at the same time and it's going to be the worst of what could happen. Usually, it does usually it doesn't work out that way. So my my advice is definitely look at energy and be careful. And be careful. And, and what, what another element on that? Um, so as you know, Art, you know, wealthy on. We have these videos that educate people, and then if they want to take action, we connect them with with financial advisors. One of our financial advisors is a guy named Lance Roberts, who's based in Houston, Texas. And uh, when he sort of advocates caution about investing in oil right now, um, one of the reasons why he does that is because he says, "Look, I've, I've lived in Texas my whole life. I'm here in Houston amongst all the oil guys." And he says, when it corrects it, 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 from an extreme, it has a history of correcting pretty quickly and pretty violently. And, and we only need to look back to, you know, whenever whatever it was, April of 2020, when oil, you know, traded for negative dollars, for negative price for, for, for a brief period of time. And, and here we are, you know, uh, basically only about two years later, and we're talking about, hey, is oil going to be $150 a barrel? You know, when, when they hit those low points or they hit a high point, when they reverse, you know, they, they, they tend to mean revert pretty quickly. That's my understanding. Do you, as an expert in the space, totally do you right. and, then, yeah. and I mean, 2020 is you know, kind of a, of, an, uh, of a special case. It's an way. extreme, extreme example. Exactly. Because a lot, we I shut mean, the economy down. <laughs> we shut the world economy. But, you know, go back to, you know, to, to 2018. This was uh, back when Trump was president and, he pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal and was planning to, uh, you know, to put an embargo on Iranian oil, which is a lot, you know, a couple of million barrels a day. And oil prices went up, you know, to almost $80 a barrel, which from where they started was pretty nearly double. And then uh, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which was that he decided to exempt a whole bunch of countries from the sanctions. Um, the price collapsed down to 50 within two months. And, and so, you know, there's a, a sort of a more, uh, I don't want to say benign, because a lot of people lost money on that deal. But, uh, you know, there, there's sort of a more normal kind of a situation. There 2014, when oil went from, you know, 110, which is nearly where it is, you know, it's, it's just a little bit higher than that now on a monthly average. And we were at, you know, $110 in June, and by Thanksgiving, we were down to 70 and and by February of, of 2015, we were down to 30 Yeah. Okay, so it makes your point. 
That's exactly. exactly. You're doing a great job of giving evidence for the for the point, right? Hey, what, one one question too, which is, you know, you're expecting demand destruction to happen organically, anyways, just as things sort of normalize um, based on the past evidence you've looked at. But but there are a number of potential things out there that also could cause a really swift correction, right? I mean, there could literally the stroke of a pen, uh, peace could be declared in. Ukraine and, and the West and Russia could all of a sudden make up and oil starts flowing a lot more freely again. Uh, China could have another bad COVID outbreak and they could go back into lockdown for the third time. I mean, they're just these, uh, those are just two off the top of my head. But the point is, is, is in addition to just the organic normalization, there are other things that could happen that could really sort of change the game quite quickly, correct? Completely. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, look at the, uh, the, the situation with Chinese real estate. I mean, there's a, you know, a, a huge potential deflationary thing going on there. Um, but, but yeah, you're right. I mean, there, there are, there are literally, uh, you know, a half dozen or so significant things that anybody who knows the world could tick off for and say, yeah, this could happen. This could happen. This could happen. You know, Libya could, uh, you know, suddenly solve its political problems and be producing a million barrels a day more than it is today. Um, you know, it's done it before many times. Uh, easily could happen again. Right. I guess uh, you could say the same for Venezuela too, right? I mean, a lot of oil that's trapped. Yeah, and, and, and in fact, I mean, right now what's happening, and then there's Iran. And it doesn't look like we're going to make a, a nuclear deal anytime soon with them, but the U.S. is essentially telling Venezuela and Iran right now, hey, guys, uh, we'll sort of look the other way because we really need your oil. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, we, hate, we hate Russia more right now, so uh, yeah, you're right, exactly. So yeah, I mean, so but but I, I think a point that you you've made a couple of times quietly, I want to emphasize, and that is that uh, 2023 is a different world, and, and and you know a lot of a lot of what makes the remainder of 2022 potentially look like a little bit of a supply surplus um, goes away in a big way uh, when we get into 2023. That, I mean, this, this is all, I mean, you've, you've turned all the dials in the best way you can to maximize supply. And can you, can you still do that as, as freely in 2023, and my sense is no, I don't think you can. Yeah. And so I, you know, I don't want to, I didn't want to, I could have uh, extended all these charts out into 2023, but I didn't want to get into that level of speculation. But my sense is, is that, uh, back to your point, if, if you want to invest in oil in general, then you should be thinking long. And by long, I mean more than 2022. And if you're thinking long, which is to say at least through 2023, then you're probably good. You're probably good to be mildly bullish on oil because the world runs on it and that isn't changing, not by 2023, no matter how bullish we are about climate change and alternate energy and all of that. So if, if you're looking to make a quick buck, um, be really, really careful. Uh, pick your name very carefully. If you're looking to generally ride what's going on into a period of potentially lower supply, you probably do okay, but but don't panic. <laughs> <laughs> All right, very wise. I should let you in there because that's such a good concluding 
comment, but I do want to ask one last question before we wrap things up. And that is from, from talking with you earlier, pre uh, post pandemic, but pre Russia, pre Ukraine, um, you had talked about how you sort of thought there was a, a new higher floor for oil in the world um, based more on, I think, sort of some of the, the, the long-term supply issues that you, have, you and I have talked about, kind of more the peak oil type, type mindset. Um, is, is there now a higher baseline going forward for a floor price for oil going forward based upon kind of the game-changing stuff we've talked that's happened this year in 2022? Um, yeah, I, I would say, I mean, anything is possible and, and I'm the one that stuck my neck out and said that things are, you know, we're, we're looking at kind of a new world order. Um, I, I want to, I don't want to walk that back. I just want to say right now, differently, probably than the last time we talked, we've got a better idea of how much Russian production will be lost, at least to the West. And it looks like it's about 2 million barrels a day. Okay, now if we had, when we had this conversation several months ago, I don't remember if we actually talked about it, but I would have probably said 2 million for the, for the next quarter, okay? That was wrong. Well, I mean, and everybody was wrong. We're always wrong about this stuff. So, so the, 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 net, the net loss to the market is not as bad as, as it initially appeared that it might now that could change. So, so that, that that's something we know. But I, I think it, you know your your question about about kind of peak oil concerns. I mean, we're not making any more of the stuff, <laughs> and we continue to make a lot more people. And, and and so, I think what what we're seeing right now, uh, I, I said it, and I don't I don't want to qualify it that the you know what we're seeing right now is. It, it, the, the, the most salient cause is trying to get things sorted back out from COVID and now we add the Russia mess into it. But, but the larger, the macro mess that we're in is, is that we're dealing with an ever more expensive commodity as our primary source of energy. And as oil price goes up, the price of renewable energy goes up too. It costs, you know, everything that goes into that solar panel or that wind turbine uses energy, mostly from fossil fuels to, to mine it, to ship it, to manufacture it, and to distribute it. So, you know, if, if we're feeling pain in the market because steel prices are more and a car is costing more and food prices are more, well, so are renewable energy uh, providers. So, so the bottom line, Adam, is, is that there, there's, there's no likely way that I can foresee that the cost of energy overall is going to do anything but, but climb higher. And, and, and so on the one hand, that creates a problem that doesn't really have a solution. On the other hand, it, produce, it, it, it creates an opportunity for investors who have at least the right sense or the right advisors to help them see the right sense into how to invest. All right, great. Well, look, I'm going to earmark that your answer there, uh, Art, as the jumping off point for the next time we bring you on the channel to really dive deep into that, uh, the, the big macro outlook around energy in total. Um, well, look, Art, uh, thanks so much for coming on and, and sharing such great data and perspective with us on, on such an important topic. 
Um, for folks that would like to follow you and your work going forward, where should they go? Artberman.com or uh, at AEBerman12 on Twitter. Uh, I'm active in both places. If, if you can, you know, if you just want to get the, the, you know, the, the, the brain dump daily, Twitter is a good place to go. If, 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 you, if you want to explain a little bit more carefully, uh, go to artberman.com. All right, great. When we edit this art, we'll put the URLs up on the screen here. But as a uh, avid consumer of both channels, highly recommend folks go follow Art in both those places. Also, if you want to see the report that we talked a lot about today, Art's report there on oil demand destruction, just go to wealthion.com slash oil demand, and we will connect you with that report. Um, if you enjoyed having Art on here, you'd like to see him on again and other great experts like him, please do me a favor, support this channel by hitting the like button and then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Art, it's been a real pleasure having you on. Thanks so much for joining us and everybody else. Thanks so much for watching. Thanks, Adam.